a debt deal is on the line. Yeas are 314, the nays are 117. The bill is passed. Whew, welcome to Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. I'm Greg Bluestein. And I'm Patricia Murphy, and we are two of your political insiders here at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. If you're just joining us for the first time, welcome, and be sure to follow us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss an episode. Patricia, we're still in the middle of my chaotic living room with bags all over the place. We are near the end stages of our packing for our kids' one-month-long trip to a sleepaway camp that I went to and I worked at and that my wife went to. They are so excited, but that is that is consuming all of our energy is getting them ready for camp. Well, and your reward will be an entire month of radio silence. I don't know what you're going to do without two kids to pack and take places and do things and make meals and cut the sandwiches, et cetera. That's, you're going to have a whole month on your hands, Greg. Get ready. The answer is whatever we want, which will be fun, except for the first weekend, which I will be spending in Columbus, Georgia, with you at the Georgia yes. GOB convention, which we'll talk about on this show. It's a jam-packed show. We're going to discuss why four Georgia lawmakers voted against the debt deal, including one surprising name and one surprising supporter as well. Uh, the Georgia GOP, which we just mentioned, is going full MAGA for its convention next week. Bill White's latest and maybe last goodbye plus our listener mailbag, and who's up and who's down for the week. This is Politically Georgia from the AJC. In Atlanta, one voice has stood out for over four decades. An AJC original, The Monica Pearson Show. Let's talk about how you got to ESPN. Revealing interviews. You are known as America's doctor, but I want to know who you were before that. When you have a different name, you have different color skin, it can be tough. With Atlanta's most famous faces, as you've never seen them before. I'm telling my story. This is the American dream. The Monica Pearson Show, streaming now on AJC.com. We're back to Politically Georgia from the AJC. Okay, Patricia, the bipartisan bill to suspend the debt limit and put in place new spending caps survived an open rebellion on the House floor and now heads to the U.S. Senate for a rushed vote to get it in the books before a potential government default that's looming on Monday. But in a sign of just how deeply the deal divided lawmakers, four Georgia House members voted against it, three Republicans and a Democrat. Okay, so the three Republicans are conservative members who balked at the deal because they thought the spending cuts didn't go far enough. Their reps, Rich McCormick, Andrew Clyde, and Mike Collins. Uh, did any of those names surprise you at all, Patricia? Uh, Rich McCormick surprised me a little bit. He is, I would say, more to uh, the ideological center than um, either certainly Andrew Clyde or Mike Collins. Um, but he did talk quite a bit during his campaign about fiscal responsibility. But to see him um, as one of the only Republicans within those two did surprise me, particularly since we're going to talk about this later, Marjorie Taylor Greene voted for it. I think the reality is that Rich McCormick is very likely to have a Republican primary in his first bid to run for re-election. Uh, the pressure is going to come from the right for him in his re-election. It's not, certainly not the only reason he did that, but that's where the pressures are for somebody like McCormick. So I was, I was surprised to see him on that short list of holdouts. And remember, these are people who voted against not just the bill, but also Speaker Kevin McCarthy in the process. And that surprised me as well about uh, McCormick. 
Yeah, we'll see if this becomes a litmus test for conservatism and if if others, you're right, we might see McCormick face a primary challenge. We also might see primary challenges um, against those who voted for the deal. Buddy Carter, Drew Ferguson, Austin Scott, Barry Lattimer, uh, Rick Allen. Uh, we'll see how big of a deal this ends up being. But as you mentioned, let's get right into it because that's the focus of your latest column, Patricia, is Marjorie Taylor Greene, um, who is tightly allied with House Speaker McCarthy, voted for this deal. She did. And Green came into this vote as somebody who is uh, perceived as a very loyal ally of House Speaker Kevin McCarthy. This was a huge test for his speakership. This is the exact vote that uh, everybody knew was going to be the hardest thing for any Republican House Speaker to pass is increasing the debt limit. So coming into this vote, it was going to be a really big test for McCarthy. He needed all of his people with him. But you look at somebody like Green, because she's also a Freedom Caucus member, and extremely conservative and very close with the grassroots, she had a lot of pressure on her going both directions, but she never really wavered on this. She did call the bill a BS sandwich, but she (laughs) also said that after getting into the details of the bill and speaking with other conservatives like Thomas Massey, who is a real extreme um, house uh, fiscal conservative, Uh, That's the extreme kind of conservative is very fiscally conservative. He put a number of measures in this bill. They're very, very arcane, but they're they're basically levers to force the House and Senate to have a more traditional by the books, rigorous process of moving appropriations bills through the Congress that will serve to bring down a lot of the spending that just shows up unexpectedly in these omnibus packages at the end. It also does contain some cuts, not as They're not as big as what the House passed the first time around in their own debt ceiling bill. But it does have some cuts to federal spending. It has some limits to Pentagon spending, which has made Republicans very upset. It also has cuts to um, or limits rather to future growth of other kinds of domestic programs like food stamps. Um, So, you know, Republicans got some of what they wanted in negotiations with President Biden. Biden got some of what he wanted in these negotiations. But again, that's a compromise. But of all people to come out so fully in favor of a compromise, for it to be Marjorie Taylor Greene has, I have to be honest, on Thursday, it has been just totally disorienting to me because uh, seeing what she has said about the bill, listening to her talk about it, listening to her extol the virtues and very sincerely of um, compromising on Uh, this bill to make it better for Republicans and talking about how dangerous it would be to let the government get any closer, even one step closer to default, how bad that would be for the business owners in her district. It is just also rational. I don't quite know how to unpack it and and, uh, explore it mentally. (laughs) But so Marjorie Taylor Greene has been a real surprise in this process. She's been very, very loyal to McCarthy very, very, um, I would say, uh, moderated in her approach to the debt ceiling, not running off, uh, jumping off a cliff with a number of the other conservatives like Andrew Clyde, but somebody who at the end of the day, McCarthy could count on. And now McCarthy owes some serious favors to. And that's what this is also all about for for Marjorie Taylor Greene. So she's been the actor to watch in this process, I think. Yeah, you tweeted, let the record show that Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene helped pass the bill that could keep the U.S. from slipping into default and ensuing economic calamity. And a reminder that just a couple of years ago, 
she was such a pariah in the U.S. House that she was stripped of her committee uh, spots and uh, just treated as an afterthought by Republican House leaders. Now she is a, a key member of uh, Kevin McCarthy's leadership team, really, right? I mean, uh, g- g- helping to coalesce a block of votes to, to get bills like this done. Meanwhile, her neighbor, Andrew Clyde, who represents the district just east of her, might have been the most outspoken Georgian against this measure. He opposed McCarthy becoming speaker, said he was against this debt deal from the very get-go, and he even said the bill's passage could raise questions about McCarthy's leadership. We know as part of the deal to get him to speakership, even just one single member could call the question, could call, could could essentially challenge him and and lead to a vote that could strip him of that gavel. So uh, Kevin McCarthy is not in the clear at all. Yeah, but you got to listen again to what Green said about the threats to try and oust McCarthy. The problem for Republicans, especially for those Freedom Caucus members who are talking about getting rid of him, is like, who are you going to replace him with? Who would be able to maintain this majority any better than McCarthy has? So Green said, I think they would find out that's not as popular as they think just because it looks good on Twitter right now. That is absolutely absurd. So again, Marjorie Taylor Green's the voice of reason. I don't really know what to do with that. But I find myself agreeing with Green on a number of points today. Uh, That will most likely change down the road. But she's been, again, just somebody really to watch. And she's also served to drain some of the power out of that Freedom Caucus by being a legitimate, grassroots, hardcore conservative and still staying with McCarthy in this process and explaining herself to the media over and over. I think she's just been a huge asset to McCarthy so far. We're going to save that clip of you saying that you find yourself agreeing with Marjorie Taylor Greene. She also said... uh, I, this is a quote from Marjorie Taylor I live in reality, not some conservative fantasy land. So there's that. I mean, it seems like a rental for now. We'll see. <laughs> <laughs> well, and then there was the lone Georgia Democrat to vote against the bill. Uh, and this this surprised some folks. It was Congresswoman Nakima Williams, who also chairs the state Democratic Party. This is what she had to say in a statement. I represent the city with the largest racial wealth gap in the country. I could not vote for an agreement that puts my constituents at risk for food insecurity, rolls back environmental protections, and ties the administration and Department of Education's hands when it comes to student debt forgiveness. So that's Nakima Williams, the only Georgia Democrat in the House to vote against this measure. She's expressing some of the concerns that we heard from more progressive members of the of, of the Democratic caucus and a position that other liberal members uh, in, in the Georgia delegation. I'm thinking of Hank Johnson, um, did not take. Yeah, and it's really interesting. A lot of these no votes in votes in a kind of showdowns like this can be choreographed. I'm not saying that they were choreographed, but there are members who uh, the White House understands are going to take a walk or they need to vote against this for certain political realities. I don't really know what explains the difference between Nakima Williams and the other just very progressive members of the Georgia delegation. I'm honestly not quite sure. She certainly is um, because she's also the uh, chairwoman of the Georgia Democratic Party. Um, She has other sort of demands on her positions. uh, But ultimately, she explained it as being a way to represent her district. The question for her, the question for somebody like Rich McCormick, if it really came down to defaulting, this ended up not being a very close vote. If it had been a vote within 
one, two, or three votes, what would you have done? They weren't pushed to make that kind of a decision mm-hmm. because this ended up being a pretty big vote on both sides. Uh, more Democrats voted for it than Republicans. That had a lot to do with the fact that the White House negotiated this bill, and Democrats are largely just extremely loyal to Biden and the Biden administration. And they liked a lot of what they got out of this bill. So it would be interesting to hear more from Williams about why she cast that vote. It it really did set her apart from the rest of the delegation. Definitely felt like a statement vote for both her and for Representative McCormick, uh, just north of her in the Atlanta suburbs. Let's shift gears a little bit uh, to talk about what we've been talking about for the last couple of weeks, but we will certainly be talking about more next week. The Georgia GOP convention is going full MAGA. And there's no better indication of that to me. There's no better illustration of that than what happened on Wednesday when we found out that former Vice President Mike Pence, who was supposed to give the keynote address the first night of the convention, scrapped, he canceled. The stated reason was that because he's about to roll out his presidential campaign and he had a conflict. What we really know is that he's going to get booed. <laughs> he was he was bound to get booed at that convention. He is planning to announce his presidential campaign a couple of days earlier. And so the optics would have been horrible. But it's who his replacement is that is equally interesting because he's going to be replaced by Carrie Lake, the ex-Arizona gubernatorial contender, who is a favorite of the MAGA crowd, an election denier, still hasn't conceded her race despite losing uh, time after time in court. So Patricia, this seems like a statement on its own. Oh, yeah. And when we got this news, I said to you, you know, man, this really changes the flavor of that convention. Because as it was, it did feel like the Georgia party was hearing from people from across the ideological spectrum and particularly on the 2020 election, when you have Donald Trump and Mike Pence at the same event, you are making a statement that you are letting your party hear from people who came down differently on that election. Some people thought, yes, it was rigged and stolen, which, by the way, of course, it was not. And it was proven many times. Other Republicans did think that Mike Pence did the right thing. And so that was giving this Georgia GOP the space to allow both of those points of view. When you get rid of any of the other speakers and add Carrie Lake, it's not that big of a difference. When you get when Mike Pence disappears and Carrie Lake comes into the picture, now you've got full MAGA, full election denialism, um, except Asa Hutchinson, who is also going to be speaking there. Um, it just really turns it from a, and now we're hearing from all of our candidates to now we're having a, a almost a Trump rally because Carrie Lake is incredibly devoted to Donald Trump. She's somebody who is talked about as a potential VP pick for Donald Trump. She held a press conference this week in Arizona, again, saying that her loss for governor in 2022 was rigged and stolen. So she's very much in that MAGA, they stole it, they rigged it crowd. And that's going to be, first of all, I'm sure a winner (laughs) in a lot of the halls that she's going to be speaking in. But it really does narrow the type of voices that we're going to hear at the convention. One Republican who is attending the event described it as a two-day defense of Donald Trump. So we'll see how that goes. We'll still, we will be there. Uh, Shaney B will even join us there. So the whole Politically Georgia team will be live on the scene in Columbus. Still to come, we're going to talk a little bit more about the farewell for the father of the failed Buckhead cityhood movement. And of course, Here are some of your questions and do who's up and who's down. This is Politically Georgia from the AJC. Hip-hop is a product of Black people. It's a product of Black song. 
and celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents Hip-Hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip-hop store. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants your rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip-hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip-hop. 50 years. No one can deny. One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip-hop. Donald Trump has been indicted in Atlanta. We have so many court dockets to follow, but we haven't really seen anything yet. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution has covered every moment of this historic case. I've been writing about this investigation for two and a half years. Our team is led by reporters Bill Rankin and Tamar Hallerman. Follow our coverage on AJC.com and listen to new in-depth episodes of the award-winning podcast, Breakdown, The Trump Indictment, only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. And we're back to Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Your host, Greg Bluestein, with your other host, Patricia Murphy. And we are two of the three authors, along with our colleague in Washington, Tia Mitchell, of the Morning Jolt newsletter, which sets the stakes in the agenda in Georgia politics. And you can get it in your inbox every morning if you're a subscriber to the AJC. You can join the community right now by going to subscribe.ajc.com slash podcasts, and you get three months of unlimited digital access for just 99 cents. That's three months for less than a dollar. Subscribe at AJC.com slash podcast so you always know what's really going on. Patricia, the AJC bid farewell to Bill White, the father of the failed Buckhead Cityhood movement, again this week. He's backtracked <laughs> on his plans to quit before, but this time he says it's for good. You actually waited to the for sale sign, or actually the sold sign was on his house before you wrote the column. Tell me what you made of your interview with him. Yes, I we and I'm sure our listeners and readers have noticed we reported when the Buckhead City movement folded. We reported when uh, Bill White said he might be leaving town. I did not want to talk to Bill White until the deal was done on his house and he had packed up the last box that happened uh, last week. And so I went and met with him at the OK Cafe under the money tree, which used to be his favorite place to do meetings about Buckhead City, um, to do kind of his exit interview. And I have to say, he's one of the most colorful characters I've ever covered in on any beat anywhere. That's one way to put it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, for better and for worse. You see his text to us. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but he's just been such a presence in Atlanta. He took up so much space while he was here. I've never seen anything quite like it. Somebody moved to town, you know, and within one year, just totally upend the politics of a place. And so that's why he's been of great interest to us. He also got the Buckhead City movement further than it ever had gotten and further than anybody thought it could. And so I think he's been a really important person for us to follow. But then also, I just couldn't resist talking to him one more time because I did have it on good authority that he was leaving Buckhead and joining Mar-a-Lago. And that was true. So we talked about his next steps. But we also, I also talked to him and asked him what mistakes he thought he had made in the process, because he made a lot of mistakes, um, burned a lot of bridges. and um, But he was very self-aware, unlike Donald Trump, who really does not admit to mistakes. And I think the two of them are not only very good friends, they share a lot of personality traits. Bill White, 
said he knew that he had made a lot of mistakes and he listed those mistakes. Um, Now, he defended most of them also at the same time, but he knew that there were things he shouldn't have done. But my biggest takeaway is he was just really stunned, I think, kind of shell-shocked that he had lost, um, that he had lost, that Republicans were in charge. He thought the Republicans were his friends because he had been their donors and socialized with them. And at the end of the day, the Republicans did not help him. And he believes they double-crossed him. I believe he didn't sell the deal, did not answer basic questions. There were a lot of fundamental problems with the situation. But all of it has just been this unbelievable drama in Buckhead and for the entire city of Atlanta. But for the time being, the storm has blown out of town. Although, as you made clear in your column, he has not abandoned his venom towards a number of Atlanta (laughs) and Georgia figures. So he is still upset and angry as he closes the book on this chapter of his life. You know, in fact, Greg, he is leaving town with basically an enemies list and uh, a plan to get back at everybody who he feels like double-crossed him. He's um, gotten financial commitments, he says. We'll see. You know, we always need to see the receipts on these things. He says he's gotten financial commitments of $2 million. Again, who knows? Um, But he does want to run ads against Governor Brian Kemp, for one, uh, against the 10 Republican senators who voted no on Buckhead City. And uh, he said, I feel like a good use of my time over the next three years is, number one, help Donald Trump get reelected to the White House. Number two, pay back the people who screwed me. And those were basically his exact words. He's going to start a pack that he says might be named the You Screwed Buckhead City <laughs> Committee. God. And really work to defeat these people. He's gonna, I mean, I would say the anger, the the revenge, the retribution, it's all still very alive. Um, but then at the same time, a lot of the bluster is gone. It doesn't sound like it, but it's just been, it's been quite a whirlwind. I, I, you know, I told him, I'm like, it's just been a little bit like a fireball and it exploded. <laughs> it exploded. <laughs> now all of the debris is raining down. <laughs> <laughs> but listen, he's he's going to live in West Palm Beach, go to Mar-a-Lago. He's got a place at Lake Burton. He is not upset about the next steps. Well, there's still no word if there's a Lake Burton cityhood movement, and there's still no word if Governor <laughs> Kemp is throwing him a farewell party in absentia. So we'll, we'll, we'll update you with that one when we hear. Okay, now it is time for the listener mailbag. We have a new number. Pay attention. You can now call the Politically Georgia podcast hotline anytime. Leave a question and we'll play it back and answer your question right here on the podcast. That new number is 404-526-AJCP. That's 404-526-2527. I have not yet programmed it into my kids' phones because I did, I, I want to respite from the uh, the prank calls. And we also have email, DMs on Twitter, however you want to get to us this week. And I think we have... Uh, an emailed question this week, Shaney B. Actually, this one's a little more old school. Oh. This came from Crisp County, postmarked <laughs> Cordelia, Georgia. Wow. It's in an envelope. It, I love it. Uh, it says here, uh, Dear Greg and Patricia, I love the podcast. I have a question. There's so much coverage about the Republican convention what about the Democratic Convention? Good question. XOXO, love, Lavelle. <laughs> Lavelle, <laughs> great name and great question. Want me to take this one first, Patricia? Yeah, you go for it. 
Well, there's an easy answer for that. They are, the, the, the Democratic convention has come and gone. Uh, generally, there's big, huge rifts within the Republican Party that we write about. And obviously, this year, it's even more uh, defined, pronunciated, because we have Donald Trump coming to town and we have other presidential candidates coming to town. The Democratic convention unfolded in a very quiet way, way back in January. Uh, nearly 300 Democrats gathered. They elected Nakima Williams to another term as the party's chair. And they had some speakers who basically had one message, which is there is still work to be done after uh, the 2022 midterm election, the 2020 gains that Democrats made. They said, look, we still we still have a big uh, haul, a big mountain ahead. Um, one of the reasons why it's not as uh, big of a big story as the Republican convention is, there's a lot less internal dissension. I'm not saying there's none because there always is. But there's not huge debates between the pro-Trump factions and the rest. There's, uh, I have a story coming out. It'll be running in the Dead Tree version this weekend, but it'll be out uh, later this week that quotes a number of Republicans saying, we need to wrest back control of the party away from the far right. And a number of the, the hardline conservatives saying, we like the way the party, we like the direction the party's going. You don't see that as much on the Democratic uh, side of the party. And also, you also don't have big name Democrats boycotting, skipping, refusing to go to their party's convention over um, ideological and policy-driven issues like you have in the Republican side when, you know, it's big news when the governor of Georgia, the most popular uh, sitting Republican official in the state, decides to not go to the convention and uh, kind of promote his own parallel political operation. Yes, there is... um kind of an irony in politics in that the parties out of power tend to have fewer power struggles because they don't have power. <laughs> you know, there is less to fight. There's less to fight over simply because they're, they have less to divvy up amongst themselves. They have a single um, goal. It, that's to get back in power. They have a single mission, which is to run against Republicans. Um, there's just not that much to fight about as Democrats right now. There are no big name Democrats boycotting because, frankly, in Georgia, there are no big name Democrats. I mean, we are at a point where this party just lost all statewide elections. They do have the two senators, but the two senators are very agreeable with each other. They're very agreeable with the rest of the party. They have so much more power and authority than anybody else in the party that they can sort of operate as independent actors. And then ultimately, it's President Biden who people will be excited to see whenever he does come here. For Republicans, it's really a different story. You have these, you have a larger party, more factions, much more to fight about, and just uh, an immense amount of churn that has been created solely because of Donald Trump's presence in the party, although his presence in the party is because of a lot of these factions. And so um, there is there's a lot of churn on the right, but it's because there's more space on the right to turn over. Yeah, it'll be interesting just to go a little deeper further in this. It'll be interesting to see what happens because there are huge names in the Democratic side, right? Raphael Warnock, John Ossoff. Raphael Warnock could well run for president uh, in the 2030s or even 2028 for all we know. John Ossoff has ambitions too and is the youngest uh, U.S. Senator Nakima Williams could well be the next House Speaker. Um, so a, a lot of big names on the federal level, but there's a huge void on the state level. And we've been used to it being filled by Stacey Abrams and Fair Fight and and her allies. And you know, if there was a a critic of a of a Kemp proposal or his budget or whatever, 
we in the media, and I think Democrats writ large out there in the field, were used to Stacey Abrams kind of filling that void. And now when Governor Kemp has a big proposal, when he is out there with a policy, when he's going, whatever, you you, you name it, um, Stacey Abrams used to be that chief critic. And now we haven't really seen any state Democrat. I'm talking about state level Democrat, not federal, but state level um, step up and be that voice. I'm not saying there's not voices. We just haven't, we just haven't seen that kind of primo voice in the way that we've been accustomed to with, with Stacey Abrams. So uh, I have a prediction <laughs> that will start to change. We're going to see a lot more policy and personality clashes within the Democrats after the 2024 election in particular, as 2026 starts nearing. And we'll see Lucy McBath, who might start accelerating maneuvering for a potential run for governor. Um, we'll see some other figures, maybe figures we saw in the midterms, uh, come shorter than the midterms, who will put their eyes on 2026. So stay tuned. But we will, we will be certainly covering the Democratic divisions as well in the years to come. Agreed. This is the phase we call the calm before the storm. Yeah. It is time for our favorite segment of the program. Who's up and who's down? Patricia, we always like to end on a happy, positive, uplifting note. So who is your who's down first? My who's down is the Fulton County Elections Board. We have had this news for a while, but Mark Nisi has been doing reporting on it, that two basically election deniers have been nominated to the Fulton County Elections Board. That is going to cause some major problems for the cohesion on that board, um, if not the actual functions. We'll have to see what happens with that. But it's an, a very, very unusual set of names to be put forward. And they're really, I think, wrestling with what the future looks like. So that's something to keep an eye on Fulton County Elections Board. And remember, there is a aborted push to give Republicans the balance of power in that uh, commission um, in that elections board that uh, was abandoned quickly after an outcry, but uh, something to keep watch of. My who's down of the week is going to be the suburban Democratic lawmakers who are facing the wrath of Brian Kemp's political machine, which is targeting them with what could be the first uh, uh, volley of attacks, but it's a six-figure initiative to target about a half dozen Democrats who are in swing-year districts. Uh, they basically say, bring it on. I, as we were talking, I even got a fundraising email um, from one of those incumbents who was saying, hey, I'm being targeted. Give me some money, essentially. Um, Republicans say, be careful what you wish for. We still don't know what the what the you know the big driving dynamics of this 2024 campaign are, but we know that in the absence of any big statewide races and with very safe U.S. House districts at play, the legislative seats will get a lot more attention than they're accustomed to. So stay tuned. Patricia, who's your who's up for the week? My who's up for the week, I don't think I've ever done this. Marjorie Taylor Greene. She, <laughs> Clip she, it. Has, she has really been a key ally to Kevin McCarthy, but strategically will end up getting quite a bit out of this vote to raise the debt ceiling. There will be more to come about um, what she gets in return for that vote, I'm sure. And uh, she's playing the inside game, but so far is still managing to keep the outside support from her grassroots supporters. So, so far, so good, Marjorie Taylor Greene. She's she's uh, playing the game and winning so far. We'll see. But to, for, as a political 
journalist watching it all happen. It's just fascinating. I, I just can't resist giving her my who's up this week. You're going to get some nice fan mail this week, Patricia. <laughs> my who's up is going to be the former vice president, Mike Pence, because sometimes doing nothing is the best move at all. And he averted what I think would have been disastrous optics had he gone to the Georgia GOP convention. He would have surely gotten booed. It would have been a story. It would have been right after the launch of his campaign. I really couldn't really imagine him going. Uh, Brian Kemp got booed, right? Um, Over the years, a lot of uh, well-regarded state Republican figures have gotten uh, their their lunch handed to them at that convention. So I just couldn't really fathom why Mike Pence was planning to go. Um, if only because no matter what he said, the, the booze would have been the story. Well, I think his advisors maybe got that message. He canceled. And so he is my who's up for the week because he averted <laughs> he averted some bad news in Georgia. Well, thanks so much for listening to the Politically Georgia podcast. You can find links to all the stories we talked about today in the episode summary of this podcast. We're going to release new episodes every Wednesday, every Friday, or whenever big news breaks. We'll see you next time on Politically Georgia from the AJC. Our journalists at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution are working around the clock to keep you updated on all the developments surrounding the Trump indictment. Now the AJC is putting all of our coverage in one place with our new Trump 19 newsletter. Every Wednesday, you'll have our latest coverage and analysis on this historic case in your inbox. So sign up for free today at AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. That's all one word. AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. I'm Ernie Suggs, race and culture reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. And I'm Ned Ravone, lifestyle columnist. Atlanta has been known as the Black Mecca for so many years, but that means something different to everybody. It means everything to me. I've been living here for 24 years, and I am still amazed at how rich the city's Black culture continues to grow. Every day I wake up, I learn something new. Well, you all can learn something new by subscribing to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution's new newsletter called Unapologetically ATL. It's all about the people, the events, and the entertainment happening in Metro Atlanta that Black people might want to know about. Like historically Black colleges and universities. Atlanta's thriving art scene. And the city's growing neighborhoods. Wherever you live, we want to hear from you. We want to hear what issues are important to you. So subscribe today at www.ajc.com slash unapologeticallyATL. Only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Oh,